Hi, and welcome to this episode of Real Nurse Stories. And today we've got a great guest um, who I'm really looking forward to interviewing, um, Lorna Cook. I'm very pleased to welcome you to my podca podcast, Real Nurse Stories. Um, you. You're welcome. And we're going to hear today from Lorna about her career as a nurse. Lorna is also an entrepreneur and I'm not going to go into that too much at this point, Lorna, because I'm going to let you talk about your journey into entrepreneurship. And it's something that myself and, and Lorna really share a passion about. So we're going to dive into that in a little bit more detail. Lorna, I'm aware you've also won lots and lots of awards. I was having a look at your website and I was uh -huh. like, oh, my word, all these all these awards for the great work that you've done so you know kudos to you for that because again you know for all the reasons we know it's it's a tough journey into entrepreneurship so I'm going to go right back to the beginning Lorna I'm going to start really at, at the place of how you came to become a nurse let's start there <laughs> well it, it wasn't a very glorious beginning to be honest um, my mother was a nurse and it never really appealed to me, um, no. you know, because she'd tell me all these sort of scary stories and things like that. So it wasn't really on my radar. I went to uni straight out of school and I was just one of those naughty teenagers that <laughs> settle and find what I wanted and I was a little bit wisp of the wind and I had a um, a friend that I was hanging around with at the time, and she said, "I'm off to nursing school. I'm going. I'm going to join up um, at Fremantle Hospital, which uh -huh. was public hospital, uh, set out of the main regions of Perth, about half an hour's drive away from Perth. But it was the only real hospital for the catchment of the whole southwest of Western Australia. It was very um, run by the ex." nursing sisters that were from the Vietnam War, Korean yeah. War. They were yeah. very militaristic. It was run like a military hospital. <laughs> and um, I thought, ooh, that sounds fun. I don't know why. Being a, you know, will-o'-the-wisp silly yeah. girl, I just did it on the spur of the moment. And it was living in the nurses' quarters. You had to live in the nurses' quarters yeah. for the first eight weeks. So I just, I don't know, I just never wanted to miss out on opportunities. No. That's just how I've lived my life, really. If I see yeah. something, I just go for it. So I joined up and um, my parents were horrified that I left <laughs> uni to go nursing, seeing, you know, thinking that it was, you know, a hard life and, you know, not one necessarily that you'd make a lot of money out of and, uh, you know, that I would just be a hardworking nurse all my life. And I was, I never looked that far. I just went and joined and I just loved it. Loved yeah. it from the day. I think I needed that steady militaristic type of rules yeah. and regulations in my life to shape me up. And um, I made lifelong friends living in the nurses' quarters with those women there. There weren't any men in those days. It was, you know, yeah. all women. And um, I just loved it. I thrived on the night duty and the responsibility because we just used to have one nursing sister, one yeah. registered nurse, um, for about four wards. Yeah. And the wards that you were on were run by a staff nurse, one that was just newly graduated, then a third-year nurse as the senior, yeah. a second-year nurse as, you know, and so on. So, But I joined up there as an enrolled nurse because I, I just was just taking opportunities, but mm. I loved it. Mm. And so when I did that, I went overseas, took my gap year, travelled in the, around the UK and yeah. then came back and settled down and started my uh, general hospital-based diploma it was then. It wasn't yeah. a university degree. So I went to a very different hospital going from a very tough, militaristic, high-acuity hospital such as Fremantle. Yeah. I went to a private hospital, St John of God's, Wow. And there were so many registered nurses, I could not believe it. They were all beautiful in their white white uniforms and um, their little veils. They looked, oh, I was so proud to be a St John's nurse. There yeah. was a champagne service with a champagne budget, whereas the public hospital had been champagne service with a beer budget, you know. <laughs> I love and, that analogy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
So I loved St. John of God's because I already had that nursing background, all the skills, you know, you know, I'd seen many resuscitations. I'd worked in the emergency department, you know, all those things. Then I went to this beautiful private hospital, so able to really consolidate customer service. Yeah. And so I I loved that, breezed through that and just loved it and made lifelong friends there as well. You know, when you're nursing and you go through all these things, you, you, you make these friends. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so towards the end of my nursing training i i got married and um i got married to a a, a nurse mm-hmm. and he at that time was doing his conversion from nursing doing a degree and uh so i i thought well that's a good idea and i give him his credit he encouraged me yeah um, so i i did the trans uh, the you know the transfer from a hospital-based diploma to a a a, um, a, deg- a degree, but at that stage I had three children really quick come <laughs> along, <laughs> and uh, by the time I'd finished working full time, studying pretty much full time, and those three little children, I wasn't getting the support I needed, and I. I um, divorced my husband. He he wasn't the man I thought he would be. He didn't give me the support he promised me he would, and um, and so I I thought I was better off bringing those children up by myself. There was yeah. a lot to it, of course. Yeah, like, yeah. Just a husband, yeah. but you know this is not about him. And um, so I thought after that. Well, a degree is a degree. Lots of people have a degree. And if I'm yeah. going to be a single mother and bring these children up, I'm going to need more. I'm going to have to offer more. Yeah. So I signed up to do my master's degree in advanced clinical nursing. And by this time, I'd moved working to Sir Charles Gardner Hospital, which is yeah. um, like the second biggest public hospital in Perth. And uh, I was put on to the neurosurgical ward, which, and I was doing night duty and it was pretty tough gig trying to stay awake uh, during the day before you go to work, then send the kids to school and sleep while they're at school yeah. and be up by the time to pick them up. You know, it was a tough gig and studying. And I did my um, my thesis on pre-admission clinic uh-huh. and an early discharge program. So it was a whole continuum of care looking at the spectrum of bringing in a surgical patient uh, we uh, we I focused on five main groups of patients because they were the ones who mostly had surgery. So it was things, common surgical things like uh, breast lump ectomies yeah. and inguinal hernias and, you know, cholecystectomies, things yeah. like that. So yeah. kept all that data and then I had the university supporting me from the, and you know, setting it up in mm. a proper research methodology and analysing the data. And then I followed those patients, took them and selected them for home treatment and uh, was able to then visit them at home and check on their wounds, give them the support they needed. So it gave me quite a, again, a consolidation into customer service. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, making sure the patients were at the centre of care. Yeah. So that stayed with me all my life, um, you know, from that point of view. So then um, because I presented at a couple of conferences, I got picked up and industry asked me to come and work for them. And I, I went and worked with a pharmaceutical company for a while in the very, very niche area uh-huh. of oncology. And so, uh, it's, you know, I, I travelled the world, but going to conferences, learning about oncology drugs. Yes. Yeah. So, it's not yeah, like yeah. you see on TV, you know, with all the reps rushing to get the doctors to use this drug or that drug. It wasn't like that because oncology drugs, you the government says you can use them or you can't. Yeah, but mine was about educate. Mine was about education and uh, learning and teaching about the new drugs and the pipeline of drugs that were coming down the road. Sorry, life, life, and um, so I. I spent um, quite a while there working and learning in oncology and that became my specialty mm. and that I was really passionate about, looking forward to the drugs of the future and what was coming, you know, and um, the immunotherapies especially really, yeah. really ticked my box. So I eventually left there and thought I have all this knowledge about oncology and customer service and 
getting patients out of hospital. How can I consolidate that? And I thought the place to be would be the health department. Um, I thought, well, I can be there at the decision-making mm. end. I, I can help them make great decisions, but it's not that easy in the public service. I was so naive. And <laughs> I ended up with just a job sitting at a desk in front of a computer. And mm. um, eventually then I became the staff development nurse for the cancer nurse coordinators. And these are nurses do an amazing job making sure patients don't slip between, you yeah. know, the, the availability of services. Um, but um, I did that for a little while. And then my business partner, Julie, Julie Adams, she'd been running a home chemo service for the public hospital service. But they closed it down and, um, you know, because it wasn't making money for the hospital system, you know, it wasn't wasn't financially viable. And now looking back at the research of all the home chemos that have ever been tried in all the world, which started in Tasmania in the 1950s actually, um, all the chemos in a public hospital system are doomed to failure because public hospital is meant to be treating public acute patients yes. and yeah. you know sick people and it's not really meant to be treating patients yeah. you know in the home environment they, yeah. they bring people into hospital yeah. the medical model yeah. not send them home so yeah. it I understand now why they closed it down but Julie had 10 years of experience of how to treat acutely ill patients in especially hematological patients uh, in the home environment so she said to me do you do you think we should start a business together and I, I couldn't think what she meant like <laughs> it's like sure that sounds great doing what and she said no I, I think we could do a, a home chemotherapy service in the private sector mm-hmm. so you know Julie's really the entrepreneur I feel like I'm more the risk taker <laughs> Julie said, I've got all the knowledge and you've got some money and, you know, you've got knowledge and networks. We should get together. I said, oh, my gosh. So um, Julie was a single mum with three kids, the same as I was, and my children were slightly older and used to babysit her children, so we'd got to know each other. And uh, I said, well, let's look at the business plan and we sat down and worked out and every. Everyone said they'd support us if we went to the private sector. So yeah. I mortgaged my house, cashed in my super, yeah, scraped every bit of money that we could get together and we quit our jobs and we started a home chemo service. I mean, that's that's amazing to me because just listening to you talking there, just that whole notion and what you were working on for your masters that is if we look now what's happening in healthcare and they're starting to look at models to do exactly what you've just described and I just think we're, we're so it takes us so long to actually realize the benefits of things yeah. and really where your thought process was and what you were studying what year was that just that I'm curious um probably it was in the early 1990s you see and look yeah. here we are now and yeah, the world still, that's... still struggling for it yeah yeah and there's there's more there's more discussion about that than there was but we're still a long way from where we need to be when we look at the pressures in hospitals now and it's you know some of these these ideas and innovations are just yeah it it, it yeah 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 but I just I I, you know the funny thing is that they even though they talked about these models of care back then and trying to get continuity of care and moving the patients out um to set up pre-admission clinics even then there was so much resistance to it resistance from everybody um they didn't want patients coming in the same day of surgery it was dangerous you know uh, inverted commas danger yeah. and um people would actively sabotage us like tear up our paperwork that we'd done you know four or five days a week before mm-hmm. just the basics of their past history past surgical history mm-hmm. you know all the basic blood tests and ecgs they'd tear them up and do them do them again on the same day of surgery 
because it was dangerous to have weak old data when when it's not an acute problem, you know. <laughs> uh, and and you know everyone was so angry, and, and there was um a, a lovely surgeon at that time who was quite politically persuasive and strong in the hospital. Yeah. And um, I brought him into the clinic and I made him look at it and we consolidated the paperwork, both medical and, and nursing, so that everything flowed, the paperwork flowed. You had the questions, yeah. the allergies, you know, the diagram of where you were going to have your yeah. surgery, the consent. And I showed it to him and he's like, oh, this looks like a good idea. Okay, I'll support it. And after that, it got supported. Yeah. And, of course, now there's not a hospital in the world that doesn't have a pre-admission clinic, no. is there? No, you know, it's, no. it's standard. So that's how I I feel that chemotherapy at home should should have gone and will probably yeah. go. But really the catalyst other than for Julie to think of it was not only the closing down of her own pre-admission clinic, mm. uh, uh, sorry, her own chemo at home uh, clinic, but the federal Australian federal government brought in some rules, and this is not the present Labor government. This was the Liberal government that was several, several, several elections ago. Yeah. So about 2012, brought in changes that they wanted to move people out into the community. Mm. So you might remember it started off like it was mental health. They stopped yeah. institutionalising people and brought them out into the community. And then they moved on. The next big project was orthopaedic rehab. So getting the total hip replacements, knee replacements out of hospital quickly yeah. and then having treatment at home with physios and visiting nurses yeah. and such. So the next one that hasn't been kicked off yet because there's been a change of government but is supposedly ready to go was cancer services. Mm -hmm. So at the same time that the government brought those changes in all those years ago back in 2012, there was a change in the Private Health Act that said hospital substitution treatments, yeah. so such as ours, oh. when the difference between a HIT program and a KIT program, you know, an HSD program, hospital in the home is like an outpatient appointment, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you know, you need stitches and a nurse comes to your house and bandages it up, yeah. something like that but you don't get admitted back into hospital to have right. that done. It's just like an extended courtesy of the hospital service. But a hospital substitution treatment program is one where you actually, even though you're treated at home, it's still as if you're being admitted to hospital. So you yeah. have to be admitted to the health service. You have all the same policies and procedures around, you know, all the important things that you would have in a hospital, mm -hmm. like being admitted, like rapid deterioration and yeah. having a policy about what you do and, um, and and closing off the end of service when the patient's finished. So it's the same as being admitted to hospital, but it's done in another no, place. Yeah. So the funding model is very different. So the private hospitals changed, the, the act was changed so that private health funds could pay for hospital substitution treatment services. Yeah. They could be paid the same as an inpatient treatment right. yeah. rather than an outpatient treatment, yeah. which, of course, they wouldn't cover. So that opened the doors to us being able to treat privately insured patients and have the co the cost covered yeah. the same as it was an inpatient. Yeah. Because it's there's no money in doing it as an outpatient. No. That's really the work of governments to provide that because yeah. there's no money in a hundred dollars yeah. for a nurse yeah. to drive out to whoop whoop and treat treat a patient, <laughs> bandage their arm. You know, you couldn't make a living and run a business. But yeah. having the private private health insurance companies on board mm. meant that it was it should have been a win for patients that they could have their treatment at home especially as they're not particularly sick having yeah. chemotherapy. You know, they're sick afterwards perhaps yeah. or they might be further progressed in their disease um, burden that they're sick. But generally they're well enough, you know, to be treated yeah. at home. And the private health insurers should find that their patients are happier and will keep their private health insurance and, you know, that it was a worthwhile thing to do and it was generally considered to be a bit cheaper than that what they were paying the hospitals for inpatient treatments for these patients. Um, and it should have been better for the doctors that they we we provide um, you know, feedback, we mm. provide paperwork, well, electronic paperwork to the doctors. This is what your patient received, this is how much they received. Yeah. Know, 
everything went well, there were no problems, which they don't get when the patients go to have their chemotherapy in a, in a day yeah. unit. Yeah. So there were lots of pluses for it. But, you know, with with the risk takers, with entrepreneurs, is that the same thing as a risk taker? Nothing <laughs> goes smoothly. No. <laughs> no. It's a roller coaster. And, of course, all those people who said they'd support us found they couldn't or wouldn't support us. Mm. So as it turns out, the private hospitals didn't want their patients going to another company to be treated because they depend on bums on seats, don't they? I was just going to say that's such a classic example of how funding models get in the way of innovation because if we look at it from a patient point of view and from there's many different angles you could look at that scenario, you know, patients prefer to have their treatment at home more often than not it's better from an infection control point of view it's just there's so many pluses but our funding models get in the way of trying to deliver that and I just think you know it it's such a difficult road to navigate and as you're talking I, I was just thinking back to how you described your journey into this in terms of going in to study a master's level with young children and juggling all of those things. And one of the things I wanted to ask you, Lorna, do you think that that, because it is a struggle, I can relate to that very similar scenario for me, studying, working full-time, bringing up children, doing ferrying kids around, all the things you do when they're young, and it's such hard work. You've got to be so kind of dedicated, but how you manage your time as well. And I just wonder whether that, in terms of your resilience, you know, doing that helps you to take this business and your entrepreneurship forward because you'd got through that, whether that has influenced in some way. That's a really interesting question and I hadn't really given that much thought. I, thinking now, I think you're probably right. I I do think I'm quite a resilient person. Mm-hmm. You know, um, my parents, were, you know, m- broke up when I was a teenager. My mother died when I was quite young um, my marriage broke up and we didn't have, you know, access mm. to many relatives to assist us, to assist me with mm. babysitting or not. Um, certainly the children's father was not on the scene. Um, I depended on friends to help me drop the kids off, pick the kids up, take them to school, yeah. get them to school. Yeah. You know, it was often late and the kids had joked they'd be left in the principal's office because <laughs> I'd forgotten to pick them up or whatever. Um, I did a, an MBA through all that second part yeah. there because I was like, if I'm going to learn business skills, I've got to know what I'm doing. Yeah. So I did an MBA part-time and um, I actually enjoyed that and the kids were a little bit older. I was able to do night classes. So probably that learned resilience. I mm. didn't know I was a resilient person because there's been many a night over these past 10 years of chemo at home that I've lain awake at yeah. night staring at the ceiling with my heart pounding thinking oh my god how am I going to do this what are we going to do will we make it you know and I you know it hasn't been easy but I'll tell you what has made it easy is having a business partner yeah. and Julie and I often I mean we weren't tied at the hip friends before we started and even now we're great friends the closest of friends but we're not tied at the hip we don't go out socially together particularly very often yeah um but we are deep deep friends because we depend on each other yeah so when one got tired and cry little cry baby and I can't cope and I say Julie Julie tell me it's going to be okay it's going to be okay (laughs) You know, it'll be okay. I've got a yeah. plan. We're gonna do this. Yeah. We're gonna yeah. we'll do that. And then when Julie's had her trials and tribulations, you know, she said to me, "I'm sorry, I'm not there for you. You're doing a great job. Go on without me." Yeah. Uh, then I broke my ankle, and then I got COVID, and I was off work. You know, yeah. she stood fast, and there's never any 
um, I need you to come to work and be no. here with me. I'll take no. the reins now. Yeah. You rest a little and get your head in the right place and vice versa. And uh, I could not have done this without her mm. and I truly believe she couldn't have done it without me. We are we are very grateful for each other's support. Yeah. But, um, yeah. gee, we it's been a, a long, hard road and everything has been tightly um focused you have to yeah. but you know when we started like chemo at home we thought it was just going to be little old Perth and we'd hire two yeah. nurses and you know we'd just do it ourselves but then the patient demand grew True. yeah and um even though the doctors and the hospitals didn't want to support us yeah patients started demanding the service mm. so they'd the, many patients are, are not up to arguing with their doctors and demanding because no. they don't know. They've never no. been through this terrible journey before and they, they just do what the doctors tell them to do. But what we saw was the younger generation, like so it might be mum and dad that are sick. Mm. And, you know, with some of the myelomas in particular, these patients have a terrible burden. You know, yeah. they, they have to go into hospital like five, six, seven times a month Yeah, to have their treatment. And somebody has to drive them in and drive them out. Yeah. And almost always it falls on the daughter or daughter-in-law yeah. who whose career, I guess, in many occasions isn't considered as important as yeah. the husband's career. And so we'd hear all these stories of women, you know, losing their jobs, you know, yeah. being deemed as unreliable because they had to take, you know, mum or dad to the hospital for their chemo. And so it was those people that that said to the doctors, if you won't refer us to this, yes. we'll find another doctor who will. Yeah. And that that's that's terrible words to a doctor, especially when the doctor's built up a, a, a relationship perhaps, yeah, yeah. with the patient. And doctors don't like losing their patients. So the doctors sort of started reluctantly yeah. sending their patients to us, but patients all reported back they loved it. Yeah. Nothing dramatic happened. No. Nobody died. No. no, you know, it was all very peaceful yeah. and low risk. And um, and then the doctors would get the feedback. This is what happened. This is how yeah. they treated. Yeah. We have a twenty four hour on call service um, for the nurses to answer the phone and talk yeah. the patients yeah. down or whatever. Yeah. But what we found was that the patients, just like my home pre admission clinic and early discharge program service was that if you educate the patients well, they rarely ring after hours yeah. with, you know, problems, you know, about the bowels yeah. or, yeah. you know, <laughs> because uh, everything's covered and, yeah. you know, the nurse is sitting there one-on-one -on -one for maybe two hours. You get to know, they get to know the patient, their family. They get to ask questions. They see the environment the patient's living in. Yeah. They assess whether the patient's coping or not and, often the problems are solved. So, you know, that if you're going to get a phone call after hours, it's, you know, something. You know, it's something. They yeah. can look up their notes. Everything's yeah. electronic. They see where that patient's up to and manage it really beautifully. So the doctors started bringing their patients. And then um, I had a friend that I'd worked with previously. She had multiple sclerosis and she said to me, what a pity you don't do immunotherapies, <laughs> the ones for MS, because I have to go to the chemo clinic once a month with the with the patients that are receiving chemotherapy for cancer, and there's no parking. There's only three disabled bays, and they have a, a first-come, first-served system. Yeah. So I have to get up like 5 o'clock in the morning to get there at 6 so I get the parking bay close, especially in winter when it's raining. And I said, oh, my gosh. You know, I never, so I spoke to Julie, who's a clinical yeah. pharmacist, and I said, Julie, if we do chemotherapy and we do immunotherapies for cancer, could we not do an immunotherapy for multiple sclerosis? Mm. And we have an expert reference group made of doctors in that field, and they came together and had a look at it and said, yeah, you could, and they came up with the protocol. And so we started doing the immunotherapies for MS, and then it started snowballing. It was the <laughs> immunotherapies for Crohn's disease and ulcerative yeah. colitis. Because, again, those patients who are treated long-term for years, they're essentially well except when they're sick. And if they miss their monthly or six-weekly or eight-weekly treatment, they're sick again. Yeah. 
And so they were deemed unreliable at work and it was a misery for them. Whereas when we came on the scene, we could do them a little bit early, a little bit later on the day or whatever. And and it was regular and it was scheduled. And so we, we were inundated with those patients. And so then pharmaceutical companies came to us and said, look, we've got drugs that can be given at home Mm. and they're a nuisance to be given in hospital because, you know, there's so many of them. If the doctor authorised it in a public hospital and they have the authority, could we pay you to administer it? So they're not influencing the doctor's choice. If the doctors deem those patients suitable, would you... Would you do that at home? Yeah, yeah we will. There's another income source. Yeah, yeah. And quite often the same patients that we were already treating, like patients with MS or whatever, you know, that were in the public hospital system. And so that started to grow there. And the trouble was with those contracts, they really wanted a national company. Mm-hmm. So we gritted our teeth. <laughs> remortgaged our houses again borrowed oh, money from friends and family and hired nurses around the country in the hope in the hope that doctors would support us and yeah. they didn't know us they're eastern states where west yeah. Coast. yeah would they support us not knowing us and um our doctors over here started talking to those doctors over there and thankfully they did start referring their patients so we we started in Adelaide next after Perth, uh-huh. then Victoria, then New South Wales, all up down the coast. Then Brisbane is our last venture. Um, and you know the thing that happened next is history shows is COVID came. Yeah. And what happened then was some patients that with cancer who were being treated in a cancer clinic, a big public hospital got COVID and died. Yeah. And so they kind of shut a lot of the clinics, closed them down or or only gave, you know, smaller amounts of staff available to yeah. treat patients. So many patients had to wait or not be treated or were too scared to be treated, especially if they had to catch buses or trams. And the Eastern States were closed down. Yeah. How were people meant yeah. to get around? Um, everyone was very frightened. And so demand for our service dramatically increased Increased. so again we borrowed money from however we could borrow money and we hired a whole lot of new nurses we had to you know lure them away from the vaccination clinics that they had jobs to go and work at and convince them to come and do a purposeful job to help cancer patients and and we have a stunning team of dedicated chemotherapy trained nurses who joined us and could see that these patients were missing out and needed to be treated. And uh, so we we increased dramatically overnight. We were just so under the pump. Nurses were working long hours, our admin yeah. staff. We had, because we're all electronic based, we don't have paperwork. Or, no. So we had this, we had to employ nurses, train nurses, yeah. manage nurses from afar, from across Australia, from our little office, our little <laughs> Uh, so you know it was it was excruciatingly difficult yeah. time and everybody pulled together amazingly but you know we're so proud to say of all all the patients and we treat about you know like 1500 2000 treatments a month nobody ever caught covid off one of our nurses and none of our nurses ever caught covid off one of our patients that's great we're isn't super it proud of yeah and I love, I love that, you know, about just listening to your journey there. You know, there's there's a lot there for me about how nurses are good innovators because I think nurses really are. They critical thinking skills. They think outside the box, and and often that's because we've had to. You know, something's not available or someone's not around. You you've got to think on your feet, and I think those skills lend themselves to understanding where the gaps in services are we're really good at that we know what needs to change what doesn't happen is we're not always asked we're not always given those opportunities to put forward ideas such as this 
And I think, you know, it's it's a great example for me of, you know, determination, grit, innovation, just not taking no for an answer and challenging that perception that, you know, I find it so interesting that generational changes are driving change. So whereas older generations would literally do what the doctor said and never question, that's no longer the case with that's changing and patient power or customer power, whatever we want to call it, will drive changes. And that's hugely exciting because healthcare is going to have to keep up with that. Uh-huh. Quite right. It's actually been a blessing and a curse for us because um, managing staff from, yeah. you know, the millennials and Gen Z, yes, baby yes. boomers, you know, it's a very broad spectrum of staff to manage and, and we've got about 120 staff across Australia mm. now that's one thing but managing patient data is another because it's very expensive to contact patients like every time you get a text yeah. from your GP or your dentist or your chemo at home you know it says you don't forget yes you've got an appointment in 48 hours a nurse is coming to your house please be there please be ready please know that we're coming please push why to respond, you know. (laughs) And whereas a lot of younger people are really quick with that, yes. Yeah. Um, But it costs money to do that. And a lot of older people don't have mobile phones. They don't, you can't, you can't send them a link to do their own online admission, which would be so much cheaper and quicker yeah. and easier because they don't remember their passwords or they, yeah. you know, their daughter always does that stuff for them and the daughter's not here today or, you yeah. know, it's so difficult to treat the different groups of um, aged, the different ages of our customers. They all require something different. Yeah. Young people don't want an email link. They want a text message. Older people want a telephone call and people all in between. So it's been quite a job to manage electronically and and the communication strategy for various generations of people. And, of course, there's exceptions in all of that. There's older people with email, there's younger people who can't use the phone. But um, it costs a lot of money to do all those things. And it's still just Julie and myself that own the company. We're still financially backing the company every and everything we need like to buy cars or hire cars for the yeah. nurse their costs we, we can't afford to make mistakes and we can't afford wastage yeah. so um over the years we've had to change our structure of the company mm-hmm. as we've grown bigger you yeah. know so you have to think of things like do we manage everything from one central point or we do we devolve responsibility to states yeah um and bringing in those changes are not always easy because no. people get set in their ways. The nurses seeing the patients in their area, they know how to do things. Yeah. The nurses themselves, they might be young nurses, you know, with, you know, four or five years of experience and they're whiz at IT. Yeah. Yeah. Where you might have sort of baby boomers like my age group that are just <laughs> not quite, I mean, I'm good on a computer because I've used it all my life. Yeah. But, you know, other people that have been working in a hospital all their lives, you know, might not have had access to the computer and the different software that we use. And so we have to spend a lot of time training them up. Um, And so these are all expenses and we have to always, always be trying to innovate and change to make us more efficient and to keep us ahead of competitors. Because, of course, whatever happens in this world, we know if something succeeds, you've got a competitor on your tail. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, so what we found is that <laughs> over the last 10 years that we've been in business, when we first started, everyone said, you can't do chemo at home, it's not safe. <laughs> what about all the chemicals floating in the air? You know, I don't want it in my house, there's chemicals. You know, we say, well, that doesn't get done like that. You know, it's no. a system, there's no, there's yeah. nothing escapes, all the safety things are here. Okay, so... But all the hospitals use that initially, like, oh, no, I need to keep my hand on the steering wheel to make yeah, sure those yeah. patients are safe. We're like, doctor, do you go down to the chemo suite and watch the patients have their chemo? <laughs> You're in a different building. You might be down south sipping wine while your patients are getting treatments. You haven't got your hand on the steering yeah. wheel. It's exactly yeah. the same thing. You take responsibility yeah. by ordering the drug and overseeing the drug and trusting that our accreditation process 
is guaranteeing our safety mm. and all the things that we have in place. So eventually people started saying, oh, it is a good idea. We do accept that it's a good idea, but we'll think about it. Our hospital's not ready for that sort of change. Like, <laughs> yep, 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 okay, okay. Um, and then COVID came and everyone's like, quick, get the yeah, right. yeah. safer. So, the patients yeah. are more comfortable. They're less exposed to germs. Funny. Yeah, yeah, and they're much safer, lower risk of readmission, lower risk of anxiety and lower risk of fatigue. And, you know, like all the things we've been telling you. Yeah, yes, yeah. That's funny. That is true. Um, and so it really picked up then. But now what we found is we're back to where we first started with all the little hospitals are going, oh, yeah, chemo home's a really good idea. I think we'll start our own chemo at home service. And it's so funny, you know, because <laughs> we'll get a call from um, a nurse that works in outpatients at some remote hospital and she's yeah. oh, admin have asked me to set up a home chemo service. <laughs> Can you tell me what you do? I'm like. How long have you got? <laughs> it's not as easy as it sounds. Make uh -huh. it, oh, but we've got spare cars. And we'll just get a nurse off the ward and give her a pump and let her go out and oh, treat no. a couple of patients a day. And you're like, what are your protocols? Protocols? Yeah. Well, we'll just do the same protocol as we do on the ward. And you're like, but they'll yeah. end up being four or five hours long. Have you got time to do that? You'll only see one patient a day. Yeah. Oh, right, a protocol. Okay. Um, and we'll say, well, how many different protocols of patients do you want to treat? Yeah. And they'll go, oh, maybe two, you know, maybe the... Yeah those patients with myeloma that need five or six or seven, you know, be good for them. And they go, how many protocols do you have? And we're like, oh, last count, I think it was 263 <laughs> different <laughs> protocols. So you got two hospitals ne next to each other that both want to start a home chemo service and they're nurses because the patients don't come from around no. the hospital. The patients can come from anywhere and just be referred to those doctors. So you've got nurses crossing over. It's you know, seeing a patient like 20, 20 kilometres away, another one, you know, is 20 kilometres in the other direction. You're like, you're so not efficient. You should be looking to to subcontract and to a had, big established company that's yeah. already there like us. So and we let them find out how inefficient they are and eventually they come back to us and go, yeah, maybe we should talk to you and go, yeah, yeah. No, it's hard. It's not easy. It's no. not easy at all. And that's, you know, I, I used to work, a long time ago now in the UK as a community nurse and we we were very fortunate to have such a good service and I appreciate Australia is obviously very much larger and more remote areas but you know the one thing that I took away from from that role was just how much difference coordination of services makes to a patient so you know, that willingness to work collaboratively, to problem solve. So in that example you've just given there, you know, everybody's running around trying to develop their own services. But actually the question should be, what what have we got out there already? Who's doing this already? And how do we how do we partner or collaborate? You know, that's a word I don't hear very often, collaboration. And if we think about years of experience of you you know, setting up, having the clinical governance, you know, having accreditation, all of those things you've mentioned throughout this interview that are hugely important and determine, you know, patient, safe patient outcomes. You've got all that knowledge. You've done the hard yards. You've put this together. You've lost sleep. You've invested money. You know, there's so much people can learn from this. And I find it so interesting that... <laughs> You know, COVID, whilst we talk about a lot of the negative things to do with COVID, actually, it also created opportunities for innovation. And you've got a really good example of how <laughs> for you, you know, yes, it upped your workload massively, but I find it fascinating that when we're up against the wall, we start to think creatively. And then when it starts to disappear, as it has, we go back to, a different approach yeah. because yeah. it's oh, like no. hello can we not learn from each other on some of this and do you know the people the thing that's disappointed me a lot has been the people that make the decisions about yeah. collaborating with us or not yeah 
are not necessarily clinicians. No. You know, no. They don't know. They think they know. They go, oh, well, yeah. like I said to you, they say, oh, well, we've got a spare nurse, which they yeah. don't. They still have to replace the yeah. nurse on the ward. Yeah. We'll get a nurse and we'll give her a spare pool car and a pump. What else do you need? Okay. You know, and they think that that's treating female at home. And <laughs> if they just came and visited us for a day, they would see the difference but nobody or, or what's been amazing too is those same people they go oh yeah but um chemo at home yeah it's a good idea but they can't do complex chemo they can only do simple chemo well, like how would you know what we do yeah. you've never yeah. asked us Very... if you had a look at our website you would yeah. see all the complex chemotherapies that yeah. we do exactly the same yeah. as hospital very very complex hematological and you know yeah. solid tumor treatments but nobody ever asks us. And I've seen reports on us. Yeah. And they say they could only do the simple ones. Like, <laughs> how do you know? It's just, oh. it's so frustrating. And I'll tell you something else that's been really frustrating is <laughs> the the level, the two interesting things. One is the level of misogyny that's been mm. thrown at us and where the support has come from yeah. in our business journey. So we had a very, very senior um, public public health department person, very, very senior. We were trying to negotiate a contract with, with the government, with one of the hospitals in a public sector, and this very senior bureaucrat said to us, listen, I think this is a great idea. Would you consider hiring a male doctor as a figurehead <laughs> if you do that i can get this across the line and get you a contract oh no what did you say <laughs> we said no that's not something we'd consider but thank you for trying to help us in your own way that's very oh. sweet but that's what you think yeah. we would like to do in this day and age i know that, that was so upsetting and we've had other similar experiences you know um with with business people like oh we'll we'll buy into your company we'll invest in your company um we're like great thank you that'd be awesome that'd take a big burden of us oh and then we'll shut it down because the competitors hospitals want us to shut you down you know we things like that you know like oh my god but surprisingly the most support that we have received from anybody other than a couple of individual doctors who really supported us and gave us all their patients yeah. and, and yeah. didn't care about the pressure from the hospitals to bring yeah. the patients in. Yeah. Um, other than those doctors have been female business women, you know, yeah. obviously yeah. female if they're business women, but women in business have been amazing yeah. to us and supported us with no you know, no thoughts of anything in exchange. Um, that they've been truly, yeah. truly put out a welcome, lifting hand to us. Yeah. And uh, Julie and I've, you know, had many discussions. Not they don't always go somewhere, but yeah. it's really lovely to know they've got our backs. Yeah. And so we try to do that to other to yeah. other businesses, men yeah. and women, but particularly women who struggle a bit more against that. Yeah. The thoughts that oh, well, you know, you'll get pregnant and leave and it'll be too hard for you. Not me, obviously. I'm a yeah, bit but... Now, but, you know, the concepts of it or, um, you know, that you're women, you don't have the qualifications and, you know, it'll be too hard for you and stuff like that. Like, oh, my God, I've got two master's degrees. Leave me alone. I'm, I'm not yeah. going to chuck anything in. And Julie and I will not chuck this business in. We've been at it 10 years. You can't. Yeah. You can't throw the livelihoods of 120 people away. We'll never do no, that. So no. what I don't know where that this misogyny comes from, it's, but we hear it yeah. quite often. And I, I can relate to that also being a you know a business owner and an entrepreneur. It, it's a perception, I think, that's yeah, it's surprising actually sometimes that there is a view, you know, you're kind of just playing at the edges it's not really yeah, a proper right. thing you know yeah, and it's right. and you, it's a it, side hustle <laughs> yeah yes yes that's the word you hear and you know when are you going to go get proper job well this yeah. is a proper job but I devote all my time and energy you know and I think 
I also relate very much to what you say, Lorna, about, you know, there's a very strong sense of community for women in business who have each other's back and do support. And I, you know, I also, you know, totally appreciate that because I think when you're having difficult times and someone else has gone through that and, and you can have that conversation woman to woman, it, it just makes such a difference. And it's, it is sad. I find it very sad that in the modern day world, we still come across these attitudes and that, you know, there's no, absolutely no way when you listen to your story and how much effort and hard work and study and determination, you know, there's no way this is ever going to fail. Oh, gosh. You know? Gosh, there's been many a nights I thought we'd fail, you know, in the yeah. in the lonely nights, <laughs> worrying about, you know, having enough money to yeah. pay the staff yeah. and, yeah. you know, to buy the next best piece of yeah. equipment that the nurses need and yeah. asking the nurses to make do for the time yeah. being or, yeah. you know. But I tell you, our staff are absolutely amazing and I, I, I've, truly believe that they love the purpose they love their interaction yeah. with their patients and uh, lots of the nurses that came to us over COVID said they wanted a job where they could feel like they were a nurse and not just actually it's funny um just what I was going to say is I had a friend um who was um he, he got pancreatic cancer and he mm. he died relatively quickly and I went to visit him he was in another state and I went to visit him before he died and uh, he said, what do you do again? And I told him what I did. And he said, oh, chemo nurses. And he said, chemo nurses, that, that'd that be a pretty easy job, wouldn't it? And I said, no, why do you say that? And he said, oh, all I see of them is they change bags. Yeah. They change the, the yeah. IV bags. Yeah. That's all I thought they did. They're just the bag changes. And I said to him, no, you know, they have to know this yeah. and that. Yeah. They have to know all the adverse events, the, the drugs. Yeah hundreds of drugs and yeah. then how they interchange and which one goes first and I said they study for ages and it's you know a yeah. skill and an art and he said oh, I had no idea no. and that's my nurses that came to work for me said that's what they felt like bag changes they didn't get a chance to do the yeah. psychosocial event you know evaluations the you know skin integrity the yeah. how people are managing to walk and cope in their homes and the interaction and addressing things like sexuality and the changes yeah. that occur yeah. with chemotherapy and all those things that a real nurse yeah. wants to do. And that's um, so true. You know, I I I have worked a lot with grads in during COVID and vaccination services. And I, I you know, as a a nurse who trained an awful long time ago now, which makes me feel very hot. <laughs> I, you know, listen to them and they come out and they're so passionate and then they hit the hospitals and you just see their enthusiasm just literally goes overnight and it's heartbreaking because they want to they want to care they want to do what they've been trained to do but it's just not you know they're just not coping with it because they're not a they're not giving the support and b I think where we are in health as for all the reasons we know is just we're just not um extending compassion to staff I think is how I would put it and I think having worked in the community and having had that huge sense of job satisfaction when you do all those things you work with a family you have opportunities you have time it's such a rewarding job it really really is and you know people don't always understand other roles I had people say that to me you know what is it you do again and it's always an opportunity to educate people I think that that's also part of our you know mission in life is to help people see the value of the work that you do yeah and, the... um, oh sorry go on no, you go you go I was going to say that that's from the nurse's point of view their satisfaction um do you, for those of you listening perhaps yeah. who don't know what an NPS score is it's um it's a a, a, a score a provider's net provider score which is given around the world as a benchmark and there's only three questions that you ask and it's like how satisfied are you with this service that you receive would you have it again and would you recommend it to a friend 
And they use this in, you know, health and banking and all over the place. You know, quite often yeah. you're on the phone to the bank and they'll say, can you just stop and yeah. uh, three, three quick questions? It's a net provider score and it ranges from positive 100 to negative 100. Mm. Um, and the, as a benchmark, most hospitals, if they're good hospitals, score positive 50 to 60, yeah. maybe up to 70. We've been doing net provider score questionnaires on our patients since we started and it's never been below about 93. Wow. 93 to 98, it varies depending. Like during COVID when we couldn't answer the phones quick enough and patients yeah. were like, yeah. it dropped a little bit because patients were annoyed that they were waiting on the phone yeah. too long. We couldn't get to them till the day after tomorrow, yeah. whatever like that. But never, never lower than the 90s, which is, That's you know, amazing. not heard of. And yeah. so I think that shows the opposite of what we were just, or not yes. the opposite, but the flip side of the yes. patients enjoying being with the patients. Yeah. And the patients enjoying what was the traditional way of nursing, wasn't it? Going yeah, to the absolutely. Treating them and absolutely. the healer coming to the patient yeah. rather than yeah. the medical model, which demands yeah. the patients go to the hospital. Yeah. yeah. Lorna, I've got two final questions for you. And we could talk for hours. I just <laughs> know we've got so many things. We might have to do a part two another time. <laughs> but one of the things I want to ask you is, where what's your vision for the next 10 years yeah um definitely we have a vision for the company yeah we'd really love to get investors now mm -hmm. now is the time that julie and i would like to take on investors and we have been looking for a long time but we want good partners yeah we want yeah. people with the same cultural vision of us we don't just want to be absorbed into a say a big hospital and just be bolted on to yeah. the side you know? so we're, we're very careful with our, our partners and we're, we're currently looking for investors mm -hmm. we our vision has always been the same is that we want to make having your chemo at home the norm yeah and only the outliers going to hospital, yeah. people that really need to be in hospital yeah. that are really sick, people who are essentially well, especially with immunotherapies, you know, they're yeah. well for years and years and years and years yeah. and cancer becomes like a chronic disease. Yeah. These patients are still well and working. They don't want to go into hospital and no. we don't want them to go to hospital. So our vision is that chemotherapy will become a norm. Yeah. And my legacy, Julie's legacy, is that one day our grandchildren look back and go, what, did people used to go to hospital? <laughs> you know, just like pre-admission clinics. Yeah. What? Did people used to have to go to hospital three days beforehand yeah. to be prepared yeah. Yeah. for a gallbladder yeah. operation? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's a thing of the past. That's what we want. So our vision is to get investors so that we can massively grow because we're just bootstrapping and growing little organically, organically, yeah. organically. Yeah. We want to be able to flood the, the countryside yeah. with nurses that are well-trained in good cars with great equipment, you know, and we can't do that alone. It'll take too long. Yeah. So that that's our main vision. Um, I've been restructuring at the moment. So Julie Julie's working on um, strategy and investment. That's her part of the company now, and I've kind of taken over as the CEO and managing. So Julie's on the company, and I'm in the company. Yeah. And um, so I've restructured recently, and uh, in preparation for growth. Yeah. And uh, the nurses are amazing and I try and teach them all business skills and yeah. bring them in and be really transparent. And I would love to, to have a modern, large company where nurses can be really rewarded for their special skills and mm -hmm. I can treat them beautifully and we can have a great company and keep our, our culture that I really love and I hope they love too. I believe they do. So that, that's the vision at the moment. Yeah. You've got a fantastic model, Lorna, for your vision you really have and I, I sincerely hope that you know people listening to this will lead to investment for you because intuitively this is where we need to be going we know that nurses know that you know things have to change what we've always done is not working we are losing nurses hand over fist walking out having enough had enough and I think I always say to people you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There are lots of opportunities in nursing. Yeah. And I think my last question to you would be, 
you know, as a nurse, if you're listening to this and you are inspired by that whole entrepreneurial spirit, what advice would you give to a nurse who's got a burning passion to do something not similar in terms of the service, but to set up their own business? Yeah. Do you know what? The I think the main thing to do mm-hmm. is to just have the idea mull it around in your head and ask for help yeah that's the main thing you can't do it on your own chances are someone's already doing it or tried to do it before or what you know ask for help people are so generous in offering help you know i i try to be a really open transparent person i have three adult daughters Mm. um I try and hope that other women will be good to them as yes. well. I am open all the time. I do a video for my staff, you know, every one to two weeks we have a happy hump day message to our geographically. <laughs> and, and every second or third one I'll do a little five-minute video with it. Yes. And I always say, I have all the time in the world. You come and talk to me if you need me. Yes. There's, there's no barriers. Yes. And I say it to friends and families and young women when I speak yes. to them, young, anybody, but yes. particularly women. Um, not very many people come and ask me for my opinion. And and I'm here and I'm available. Oh, That's a shame. Because I they, teach you business. Yeah. So all my nurses that I have at the moment, they've said to you before, I've made them all senior managers. Mm-hmm. They've not been managers before. They're chemo nurses. Yeah. And I'm teaching them business. I make them come and sit yeah. with me and listen when I'm doing yeah. contract negotiation. And then I back out and I let them do some of the negotiation. And then I, you know, push myself yeah. further back to teach them. There's there's lots of me. Yeah. Yeah. And me. What I yeah. mean is me. Is people like me. Yeah. You just need to ask someone, yeah. have an idea. And then ask them what the next step is. And then, that, you know, someone said to me when Julie and I started, they said, whoa, before you start anything, you've got the business plan. That's good. Now find yourself a good accountant and a good lawyer. Yeah. Right? And a business advisor. Yeah. And do things properly from the start. Yeah. So you yeah. don't, you know, chuck it in too quickly and, you know, you've you've got the you've got the business set up legally. You've got shareholders yeah. agreements. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so that if anything goes wrong, you know where you stand. Yeah. And you know, that was the best piece of advice to me. And you know, when we've been stuck and not knowing what to do, we ring one of our network of friends and people in business and go, Can I ask you a question? Yeah. If you yeah. had a problem like this, what would you do? Do you think we should? And just get their advice. You don't yeah. have to take it. Yeah. But you've got it and you learn more like that. So yeah, yeah I just ask for help. There's so many people out there and there's so many opportunities for help out there and we just don't ask and then people sit there stewing in their own juices going one day I'll do this yeah one day I might when the kids are at school I might when the kids grow up I Mm. might you know but just do it now just ask ask the question and as we know we don't always get all those days do we so if you have an idea that's a lot of what I do coaching people helping them to put those ideas into actions you know but like I say back to when I chucked uni in to go and be an enrolled nurse yeah I realized I was a risk taker yeah um just you know didn't always work but yeah. I learned from when it yeah. didn't yeah. that's the best thing to learn yeah. from is when Absolutely. I've had a wonderful life as a nurse and I love yeah you know, I even though I work in administration running a business I still yeah. consider myself yeah. a nurse yeah. I'm still registered as a nurse yeah. I still attend every education as yeah. a nurse I, I seek education and knowledge yeah. every everything I can every podcast yeah. I can yeah. you know every every webinar every educate there's so many they're all free they are there's so much say there's so nothing much. to teach you or nothing you can learn from I would just like, Lorna, to give you the opportunity. I have had a look at your website and it's impressive, I have to say. It's, but I would like you to be able to just um, connect with people listening. So if people want to know more about you or if you're a nurse and you're interested in working yes, with good, Lorna, you know, <laughs> just kind of give you that opportunity to say how people can find you. Yep. Well, our company is actually called View Health chemo at home so view health is like our hospital it's like our mothership 
And we have Kimot Home is one of our wards. We have several wards, but that's the main yeah. one that we're known as Kimot Home. Um, our website, our website is Kimot Home. Excuse me, kimothome.com.au. Um, we, as I said, do over two hundred and fifty different types of protocols. If you're, if you know someone that you think could benefit, you can look up our website. You can ring our staff. It's one three hundred chemo. <clears throat> one three hundred home chemo and um you know the nurses can talk you through it there's almost nothing that can't be done at home all the immunotherapies all the chemotherapies right around australia we have patients that travel we do their first treatment in perth their next treatment in melbourne their next treatment in brisbane <laughs> you know um we, we're open to discussion come and talk to us if yeah. you're a nurse that'd like a job if you're a doctor thinking about sending your patients to us we have all the governance and accreditation and insurances we've been doing it for 10 years you can mm. trust us and um and uh thank you for taking an interest please spread the word and tell people about us and uh let's let's get rid of those old-fashioned hospital ideas and move on to <laughs> Thank you so much, Lorna. I have really enjoyed chatting with you for this episode yeah. of the podcast. I think there's so much more we could have covered, but it's just, <laughs> yeah, it's been great. So thank you thank for you, your Eva. time. I really, really have enjoyed hearing about your career and all the great work that you do. Thank you so much. Back at you. Talk again soon. <laughs>